1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Angels in America by Tony Kushner, in revival on Broadway through June 15th and at Berkeley Rep in Berkeley through July 22nd, has become a stage classic since it was first produced in the early 1990s. Dealing with the confluence of the AIDS epidemic, the Reagan era, the disintegration of the Soviet Union, and the rise of gay liberation, the seven-hour epic theater piece also became a 2003 film directed by Mike Nichols and starring Meryl Streep and Al Pacino. This interview contains spoilers on the play and film. My guests are Isaac Butler and Dan Kois whose book is titled The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America. It's an oral history of the history of the play Angels in America from its conception and the Reagan era and AIDS up until currently because there are quotes about the Berkeley Rep show now running and the New York show. I understand that the origins of this book came because of a Slate article the two of you wrote, and that in fact, according to New York Times interview, Ellen McLaughlin and Kathleen Chalfont, who were two of the original stars of Angels in America on Broadway and before, both of them said to you, hey, this should be a book. Dan, you want to hit this
0: one? Yeah, well, so Kathy and Alan both, as you say, were stars on Broadway and here in San Francisco and helped develop this show through its long development process over many years in, in San Francisco, L.A. and New York. Uh, And then premiered it here in San Francisco at the Eureka. And in talking to both of them, what had initially been scheduled, you know, one interview for Isaac and one for me, as 30-minute interviews maybe where we just sort of talked through the history of the play turned into these multi-hour epic conversations with tears on both sides. And the sense from both of us for the first time of the kind of momentousness of the story we were attempting to tell, not only the story's scope, But the emotional weight it had for the people we would be talking to for both Kathleen and Ellen, the story of working on this play was a kind of formative, crucial experience in their artistic lives, something they would carry with them forever and a story they had been dying to tell for, you know, 20 plus years. And so for both of them, having the chance to tell it to someone and hearing how much it spun out and how much it meant to both them and us clued them in. That the story they had wanted to be out in the world, this this Angels in America book that they had sort of fancifully talked about decades ago when they were on the show, had a chance at actually happening. And and they sort of clued us in belatedly
1: to something we maybe should have figured out from the get-go. Had you spoken with Tony Kushner at that point?
2: We had at least one interview on the books with Tony Kushner at that point. I I actually don't remember the exact schedule, but the first interview we booked was with him because if he hadn't participated in the project, the project would have been a little pointless probably. And so we interviewed him, I think, between the two of us four or five times, plus every now and then we would call him because we had one quick fact check question or whatever. But yeah, his involvement
1: was secured pretty early on. How many of these were phone interviews, and how many were live, and did you do follow-ups when talking to one person?
0: Two-thirds of the interviews we did were by phone or in person, the vast majority of those by phone. Another third of them were done by Skype or just by email, by peppering people with questions over email and keeping an exchange, going back and forth. We talked to everyone in this book from, you know, big stars for whom sending up those interviews meant 25 calls to a publicist to, you know, actors who performed in some random production of the play in Greenville, South Carolina in 2009, for whom it meant sending them an email and them sending me back an email and then us talking on the phone. Overall, though, what we ended up getting were a bunch of like very excited, excitable voices because whether they were talking to us over the phone or whether they took the time to write an email, we kept finding over and over again that people were devoting a lot of emotional attention to these interviews because of how formative and meaningful this experience had been for them. No one came back to us and said, oh,
1: Angels in America? Was I in that? I barely remember. Because it was a, a landmark for everybody yeah. involved. Yes. Did either of you, both of you, read the long, long, long scripts for particularly perestroika, the second part.
2: Yeah, I got a chance to read an original draft of Perestroika because it turned out through the random small world of DC theater. Because I had friends in there that the set designer of the original Eureka production in San Francisco now lives in DC and is an architect. And I went to his office and spent an afternoon reading the whole thing. We've read earlier drafts of Millennium Approaches, where if you know the play, the Roy Cohn scene begins the play instead of the rabbi's monologue. We've read many different drafts of Perestroika. And we actually, were lucky enough to see and read the screenplays that Tony Kushner wrote of both plays back in the 90s when Robert
1: Altman was trying to adapt the plays into a film. And according to Dan Coy's, it was... Amazingly bad. <laughs> uh, did I say
0: that out loud? Maybe. Uh,
1: <laughs> I think. I think the idea of the film was amazingly
2: was probably yes. going to be amazingly bad. The screenplays are peculiar, but uh, I'll let Dan describe them to
0: you. I found the screenplays themselves kind of delightful to watch. Tony, you know, an artist who'd worked very specifically in one mode in his mode, where he'd written very personally for all his life, try and bend his style to what he thought a Robert Altman version of his play would be. And so there's sort of these cinematic flights of fancy of the type that Robert Altman actually was quite bad at generating these kinds of effects-driven moments, but also, you know, all these kind of lovely interconnected moments of coincidence and encounter of the type that altman specialized in so you'd have you know roy Cohn pulling in in his car uh, on the upper east side and stepping out of his car and then in the background lewis would be riding by in a bus and then the ghost of ethel rosenberg was buying a loaf of bread at the corner and to see those moments i found quite wonderful the idea of what the actual robert altman movie might have been still sort of sends shivers down my spine, (laughs) both of delight
1: and of foreboding. Because it would have been an interesting film, but not Angels in America.
0: Right. It maybe would have been a wonderful Altman film, or it maybe would have been a disaster. It certainly would have been something very different, for example, than what Mike Nichols' film turned out to be, which you know, I think to some people's delight and other people's chagrin was a very faithful representation of the play on a movie screen with very little liberty taken.
1: I saw a New York Times article about Perestroika, part two of Angels in America. There was a reference by Tony Kushner that he was continuing to work on it and in fact some of the changes were incorporated into that New York version. And then I spoke with somebody at Berkeley Rep when I saw it and they said that was the same script that Berkeley Rep was using, is that correct? Almost. We actually, you know,
2: we've seen this show a lot. I, I, I've seen the the production that's currently on Broadway. I saw it twice in two weeks, and then we also saw it earlier when it was in London. And we've read many, many different versions of this play. And i got to say, we went to go see the very good production. You know, it's a great production out at Berkeley Rep. And there were some lines in there that we had never heard before. We think that not only did Tony do rewrites for the Broadway production,
0: that there are at least a couple of lines at Berkeley Rep that are brand new, just to this, that Tony Ticoni, the director, incorporated from earlier drafts that he had seen, you know, because he has a long history with the play, or that Tony specifically wrote for this production. Like there are very subtle, slight differences in the scripts between even Broadway now and this production now. And of course, that Broadway script is very different, miles different from what you would have seen if you saw it on Broadway in 1993 or 1994 when it first premiered. I would say, uh, Perestroika, particularly. 70% of that play, I bet, has been substantially rewritten since that Broadway production.
2: Yeah, he's completely rewritten a bunch of stuff having to do with Joe. I think most of the lines around or that involve Joe Pitt have been rewritten. And the second act of Perestroika, which is the scene between the angel and Prior, where the angel gives Prior the prophecy. Kushner says, you know, that's the most rewritten thing he's ever done. I think it's been through, you know, scientists estimate 1.35 million drafts <laughs> of that act of Perestroika have been written.
1: So that's very different from the film, too.
2: Very different from the oh, film. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the film is largely faithful to the text of the play as it existed in that moment. There's one scene added and there's some cuts, but there's not a lot of radical reimagining of the text going on in the Mike Nichols version for HBO.
0: And that added scene is one that Tony told us Mike basically begged him to include a kind of closure for the character of Joe at the very end of the play, a final scene between him and his mother at a subway station to give audiences at least a sense that the last thing they were seen from him was not him being slapped by his wife and walked out on.
1: Well, I was kind of surprised when I was reading the book that Tony Kushner had cut a scene of Roy Cohn in Hell and then I saw Berkeley Rep and I saw the scene yeah <laughs> we were so excited by that because we've never seen that scene live so last night when it
0: happened Isaac and I were sitting right next to each other we just started elbowing
2: each you were other like, you know, it's like you fist bump it's like when you go to see a band right and a band <laughs> plays like an obscure B-side that's, right. that's never been recorded to a major label you know it really really felt like that because I mean most audiences if, if you're an Angels in America aficionado that scene has essentially been cut from the play since it was in previews on Broadway 25 years ago. So that scene is not in New
1: York. No, it's, it's not in New York. York.
0: It has I don't know of any major production that's put that scene on since that Broadway production. It still lives in the play script and it's in an appendix where Tony Kushner basically says, you know,
1: we cut these, but if you want to do them, knock yourself out. I get the sense, though, that Tony Kushner tends in these larger productions to have approval or disapproval.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, any any production where you've legally licensed the play, you need the playwright's approval on any changes that you make to the to the text. Right. Right. And, you know, Tony Kushner and Tony Tocconi are very close friends. They're very close collaborators. They've worked together on many, many shows over the decades. We just weren't aware that they had had conversations about this stuff. And we
1: really look forward to talking (laughs) to them about it. A brief interjection here. The evening after this interview was recorded, Dan Kois and Isaac Butler were on stage at Berkeley Rep with Steven Spinella, who plays Roy Cohn in the Berkeley Rep production. It turns out that it was Spinella himself who wanted to restore the scene, and Tony Kushner gave the go-ahead, saying that it was fine to stick it in or after the bows at the end of the play, like the teasers at the end of superhero films. At some point, though, director Tony Tacconi chose to move the scene before the epilogue because the stage would be too crazy at the bows to suddenly do another scene with effects. Thus, it became part of the play. What other major changes do you remember? from New York to Berkeley rapper is that the biggest. one?
0: that's the big one and then a couple of, you know, tweaked lines here and there that really surprised us. I mean, but, but also, you know, as every production has a completely different feel and is driven by the performances, you know, one thing we learned in researching this book is that the many productions of Angels in America, the way you can sort of mark the differences in them often begins with Roy Cohn. The actor who's cast as Roy Cohn, Tony told Isaac in an interview, you know, whenever anyone asked to do this play, the first question I ask is, who's your Roy? The actor who plays that usually has to have some stature. Often it helps if they're actually truly famous an Al Pacino or a Nathan Lane, or in this case is Steven Spinella here at Berkeley Rep. The weight that that actor brings in often drives the whole thing, and the performance he gives often defines the kind of show you're about to see. So Nathan Lane as Roy Cohn in New York is giving a very wonderful and very different performance than the wonderful performance that Steven Spinella is giving here. Nathan Lane is very recognizably a Nathan Lane version of Roy Cohn, one that isn't necessarily that different from the vision of Roy Cohn in the script as a kind of entertainer who views himself uh, in that way and who views his job as sort of pushing forward every scene and focusing the energy on him in that room. Stephen Spinella is much more still on the stage than Nathan Lane is. He is doing something much closer to a vocal impression of what Roy Cohn actually sounded like. And he's chewing on lines with a kind of thoughtfulness that Nathan Lane's Roy Cohn maybe doesn't even have time for because he's so his energy is so front forward. And that affects those productions in really fascinating ways.
1: Well, one thing I saw with Spinella, particularly early on, is... There was a slight gay tinge to him that you don't see in other Roy Cones, And that may be just Spinella. It could be some kind of ghost of Pryor from <laughs> 30 years ago. But it felt like, okay, you know, people kind of knew, people who knew Cohn kind of knew he was gay, even though he was closeted. And that would make sense. Also, there were some Trumpian gestures in there. <laughs> Which, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, or maybe
2: there's some Conian gestures in Trump since Roy right. Cohn was, you know, Donald Trump's mentor. I mean, I, I will say that one really interesting thing about having both of these productions on right now is that this is actually both of these productions have openly gay actors playing Roy Cohn. I mean, there are other openly gay actors who played Roy Cohn, but, you know, Ron Liebman was heterosexual, F. Murray Abraham's heterosexual, Al Pacino's heterosexual. And so, you know, it, it is interesting to have openly gay actors play This sort of deeply closeted, but also if you've ever watched his interviews, you know, there's a certain fabulousness and a certain uh, uh, effeminacy to Roy Cohn, if you if you look at at his old interviews. And the other thing that I would say is that actually, if you look at our president, there's a certain effeminacy to his mannerisms and speaking patterns as well. If you just turn the sound off and watch our president gesture, if you do that, you know, what's 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 very interesting about it, because he's so obsessed with his own machismo, is that if you actually look at his physical performance, it runs completely completely counter to that and as a as a man with an effeminate gestural vocabulary myself, I find that really fascinating in the 80s when Roy Cohn was at his
0: sort of the peak of his power before the decline that came with his illness, that was a time when you could be, as several people talk about in our book, you could have all the clear outward markers of gayness, things that we, recognize now that a mass audience recognizes now as a mark of gayness but yet still treat that with a kind of wink that was then accepted by straight culture as uh not sort of worth going into so that you could be you know on the hollywood squares and be fabulous but that's just the kind of guy you are and people would still seriously ask you stupid questions about your girlfriends and so roy Cohn lived in an era in which he could you know go to the saint or go to other gay bars in the village where he could be not even an open secret but just open that that was the person that he was but along official lines and to straight people who didn't understand the cues that he was giving off, he still could declare himself and live as if he was straight to have the kind of power that was at that time only associated with straight men.
2: Yeah, he had an, an on-again, off-again this head in heavy quotes, on-again, off-again relationship with Barbara Walters to whom he was engaged more than once. There was nothing to that at all. It's not like they, Roy was even pretending to actually be in a relationship with her. She just like did that
1: as a favor to him. Well, it seemed to me at least in the Spinella performance, that he wasn't quite the villain that we've seen in other performances. One thing I was thinking about when I was reading the section on Joe Pitt is that he's always played as very straight acting, and yet at the same time, there are cues from both Roy Cohn and particularly Lewis in the bathroom scene that other people particularly gay people, can easily identify that he's gay, making me think that a more effeminate Joe Pitt would be an interesting possibility.
2: Yeah. And that's something that Stephen Spinella raises in the chapter. Like, wouldn't it be wonderful if Joe Pitt was sort of barely passing for straight so that when Roy Cohn says, oh, your wife? You know, Joe Pitt says, I have to talk it over with my wife. And Roy Cohn's response is your wife that that tells you something but there's also a scene in the second half in the second play in Paris Stryker where he's called the Marlboro man he's right. called Uber Butch he's you know he made me feel beyond
1: nelly <laughs> so Randy Harrison may not work out in that part with that scene Randy Harrison plays prior Oh plays prior yes yeah. so if you were to switch the two actors yes. and put Randy on the stage <laughs> it wouldn't work for that scene but I kept thinking you know if someone like Randy Harrison were playing Pitt, you know, some kind of gay-looking twink, that would have changed the dynamic
0: completely. I mean, one real lesson of this book for us has been that the play is capacious enough to accommodate a lot of actually interpretations of these roles, I think far beyond maybe even what its creator has always been comfortable with. There's a long history you know, chronicled in the book of Tony giving very harsh notes to many productions and many performers and being very dissatisfied with the way that people have played a lot of these characters. Yet, in pretty much all of those cases, the performances and the productions have eventually worked. The characters are complicated enough that finding other ways into them can really pay off in unexpected performances.
1: Well, that puts it on the order of plays like Shakespeare, where you can just completely change the play just by changing the casting.
0: Right. I mean, I don't know that we're at a point yet where people, you know, where someone can put on a, a World War II set Angels in America with everyone <laughs> in like Nazi garb. But at the same time, it, it accommodates a lot of different interpretations. And certainly part of the argument of our book is that The play is a kind of timeless classic, a kind of history play on Shakespearean lines that can live long beyond the specific circumstances of its writing, uh, both politically, culturally and socially.
2: And I think if you go to see both of the productions, although if you get pull your frequent flyer miles to see the production of Berkeley Rep and the production on Broadway, it's just like that couldn't be clearer. These two productions are it's the same text. Almost the same text. The approaches and the casting are radically different on both of them. And they both work, even though they just have completely different minds behind them directing them.
1: Isaac Butler, what brought you into the project to even write the Slate article to begin with? Oh, what
2: brought me into the project was Daniel Kois. So maybe Dan should tell that story, actually, about when it became a zygote, before it started really becoming a a baby. I'm an editor at Slate, and at the time,
0: in 2016, I was the culture editor of the magazine. And I wanted to do a cover story, an oral history of Angels in America, history of Angels in America. And I wanted to peg it to the anniversary of the Eureka Theater production, which opened at the end of May, early June um, 1991. And I pitched this thing in, like, the end of March. And so when we decided to do it... I knew both that I was so excited to write this thing and also that it was a completely impossible task to tell this story in the you know two months I had between when I pitched it and when the thing needed to run. And I had worked with Isaac on a bunch of other pieces. I had edited him on a bunch of other
2: pieces, and we had mutual friends in common, although we had never met in person until – until, yeah, Dan was like, I have this idea. I'm going to be in New York. Do you want to get lunch? And we'll talk about this idea. And then we went and got dumplings over nearby the the Slate offices, um, which is always, you know, when you're discussing business, do it over dumplings. Mm-hmm. And Dan said, I'm thinking about doing this piece about Angels in America. It's going to be an oral history. Right. And then very quickly we started sort of opening Google Docs to start listing all the people that we wanted to interview and claim them and everything like that. And then I will say that in the style of Angels in America – We did not deliver that piece on time. It did take more than two months. It took uh, three months, and it was much longer than we originally anticipated. And it
0: just kept getting longer. And, I mean, Isaac ended up being the perfect choice, you know, for a number of reasons. He's delightful to work with, and he's very good at what he does. But he also—he had a kind of political sensibility about him that is not a strength of mine, necessarily, editorially or from a writing standpoint. You know, because he's a practicing theater maker, he's a writer and a director, he had a a well of contacts in the theater world— That made it much easier to start to get the kinds of interviews we knew we needed to get that weren't just, you know, the actors in the original production and actors who are doing it now. We wanted actors who had done it ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Playwrights who could talk about the way the play had influenced them.
2: Stage managers who always know where the bodies are
0: buried. That's right. We and so, you know, having Isaac's expertise and connections helped to make those connections much more easy.
1: Some people are not
0: in
2: the book. Particularly Pacino. (laughs) Well, you know, Pacino famously doesn't really do interviews, except now there was a big retrospective of his film career in New York City, and Uh, he did like a thousand interviews for that. He became the easiest to get interview subject in the world. But at the time that we were researching this, you know, uh, Al Pacino really didn't do interviews. We reached out to his people. and and We
0: actually, you know, we got closer with, with many of the people we didn't get. There are famous people we did not get for this. And in a lot of those cases, we had the very clear impression that the publicist we pitched did not even bother to forward our request to the actual famous person in question. This was a case where I got Al Pacino's assistant's email address somehow, like through some miracle, and got the guy to say, yeah, I've seen Al this afternoon and I'll bring it up to him. And then he was like, yeah, Al said no. So, you know, <laughs> but you got Meryl we, Streep. We did get Meryl Streep. You know, yes. I would,
2: you, we would always, in the emails that you send to the publicist, you're like, we're working on this project. And it's some of the following people involved. And you're always like, Meryl, Meryl Streep. Streep. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's, it's like, as long as you put Meryl Streep's name in there, you put Tony Kushner's name in there. And, that, and I think that that helped, but it did not get it did everyone. Not get Pacino, yeah. It did not
1: get Pacino. Patrick Wilson isn't in there either. I don't believe. That's
0: true. So from the movie we got Ben Shankman, we got Mary Louise Parker, we got Meryl Street, we got Jeffrey Wright, Justin and, Kirk. And we got Justin Kirk. So we got those five. But Emma Thompson declined, Patrick Wilson declined, and Al Pacino declined. The you know, what was interesting about the movie is that the movie came out in two thousand three. For those who don't remember who are who are listening, it was an HBO two part movie slash miniseries that won a gazillion Emmys that year, directed by Mike Nichols. And the big stumbling block we had with the movie was not someone who told us no, but someone who had passed away, right? Which was that Mike Nichols was gone. And we knew his biographer, who happens to be Tony Kushner's husband, Mark Harris. Convenient. Convenient. <laughs> but Mark had not really gotten, his research had not really gotten to that part of Nichols' career yet. So he could talk sort of broadly around that. But what really cracked the movie for us happened very late in the game, which was that we finally found, I think through Isaac, just like looking through the IMDb credits for the Angels in America movie, we realized that, the, that Mike Nichols' assistant during that shoot was a now prominent theater director, Trip Coleman. And so we talked to Tripp, whose experience of working on that shoot so dramatically transformed the way we thought of that movie and what that experience had been like, that it really brought that chapter to life. And he was probably one of the last three people we interviewed for this book. He
2: was really at the very end, and it really humanized that whole thing because you get the young, aspiring artist's view on this process that was chock-a-block with veterans and superstars and, and, you know, the lions of the industry.
1: Uh, When I spoke with Tony Kushner in 2006— Uh, We mostly talked about IHO and Munich because Munich had come out a few months earlier. Um, But he did mention with regard to the film that he felt that the character of Joe Pitt was never fully understood except by Patrick Wilson and not by David Marshall Grant. You know,
2: the character of Joe, I think, took Tony a long time to understand, too. I mean, as we said, when a few years after that film, when he did the signature revival of Angels in America, he basically rewrote Joe's part in Perestroika almost entirely. He and Bill Hack,
0: who played Joe in that production, worked together to revise almost every aspect of Joe. And so I think the, the kind of interesting, the annotated version of that thing that Tony said to you is that I think Tony makes it clear in our conversations with him That when David Marshall Grant was playing Joe in 1993, Tony also didn't understand Joe yet. And he still was struggling with that character.
2: And I'll also say, I think, you know, one of the remarkable things, though, about that miniseries is a then relatively unknown Patrick Wilson's performance in that role. Because wasn't it like his first big... Gig. I mean, he hadn't done a lot of. I think he, I think he film maybe yet.
0: had been in um uh that that movie with Kate Winslet uh right. Little Children. I think he'd been in that.
2: Yeah, but I mean, it is a really it's it's a really it is a really incredible performance. I don't mean any of this to to knock that because when I return to that miniseries, I
1: often notice how incredible that Joe is. Well, I noticed in uh, the world only spins forward. I noticed that. David Marshall Grant actually was Joe Pitt. Yeah, yeah. He was very, you know,
2: that was a wonderful interview. David Marshall Grant is, like many of the actors who play Joe, one commonality they have in common is that they're the nicest people on earth. Oh, I mean, man. They're so friendly and easy to get along with. And David Marshall Grant was great. He was laughing at this sort of, you know, this period in his life when he was in the closet because he wanted to be a famous actor and he wanted to have a family. He wanted to have kids. And, you know, he, it's really a testament to that time as well. He did not feel in the early 90s that he could have a career and be openly gay. And he didn't think that it would be possible for him to get married and have kids when he was openly gay. And he was in therapy about it. You know, he was really in the closet and he came out of the closet to his agent over the course of the production. And he started being, you know, more, more open. And now he's an acclaimed producer and writer and he is married to a man and they have kids. So, you know, it really is this kind of remarkable, almost period piece. And one of the nice things about Getting that story twenty-five years later is—you can get someone who can laugh at themselves from back then and be like, "Oy vey, what a mess!"
1: Right? <laughs> I noticed in talking to people about this production because a number of people I know have seen it in Berkeley Rep. I'm talking about here. The question is: Is it a period piece, or is it not a period piece? The friend of mine, the plus one that I took, basically was Lewis. Only he stayed for the partner who died. For him, this is contemporary. And yet, at the same time, other people have said, "Oh, now we can look at it as a period piece, and I'm kind of torn between the two. What do you think about that Isaac Butler?
2: I have a lot of thoughts about that, so Dan, please feel free to jump in and 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 anytime you want. Um, one of the things that I will say is that the play is set in 1985 and 1986. Tony Kushner started writing it in 1988 and it debuted on Broadway in 1993. So even in its original conception, it is looking back to another sort of micro period of the AIDS crisis. AZT was widely available in 1993. There was a study about to come out that showed that it actually was not effective in increasing lifespan and that on its own it didn't really work. Whereas the action of the play in Angels in America is about, you know, partially about trying to get your hands on some AZT. So that is one thing about it. I I do think that lots has changed in terms of how AIDS is managed as a disease in the United States. Thanks to the introduction of the triple cocktails. Thanks in part to Obamacare and and a few other things, you know, for certain parts of the population, you can live with HIV as a chronic disease. Although I lost a friend last year to AIDS. So that is not a universal experience. So that is one way in which it has changed. But the themes I think, and the things that it wrestles with are very much with us now. And one way that that manifests itself, I think, has
0: a little bit to do with, the, with your friend's response to it, right? There was a lot of attention given to the play early in its life and a lot of heat given to the play specifically because of that choice that Lewis makes. The choice to leave Pryor when he is sick. A choice that, as Lewis himself says, and as Pryor says in Perestroika, no one else does. Pryor says, you know, there's a million other gay men with this disease in New York City, and they all have people taking care of them, so why did I get you? And at the time, you know, when this play was the play about AIDS, and the crisis was still raring along and killing people by the score, there was a lot of criticism of Angels because it's— lead character and its author analog made that choice, a non-representative choice for the gay men of that time. In retrospect, now I think that choice makes the play feel more timeless than I think people might've anticipated because it's not showing what life was like for most gay men in 1993. It's showing a gay man in extremis, a man who makes the most awful choice, the one that no one truly made, but who gives into the fear that drove so many people at that time. And so in giving us that, it becomes a kind of, to me, more akin to a Shakespearean history play in which those themes, the theme of fear and of what you are capable of and that you might be the person who abandons someone, means m- as much to the play as the specifics of the AIDS epidemic circa 1993.
1: There are some great little stories within the book, one of which is the 16-year-old kid who sees it with his mother and says, oh. Gays can be assholes, too. (laughs) (laughs) A story told to us by David Marshall Grant, in fact, who then met that kid and his mom backstage. And then there's the story of Charlotte Rep and what happened there.
0: So Charlotte Rep was the big repertory theater in Charlotte, North Carolina. 1995 and 1996 were the first years that regional theaters around the country first began to get their hands on the play. And it was fought over in that market. You know, every theater wanted this play, the biggest play of the you know, over the last 50 years that anyone could think of. And the tour had sort of just finished its run, the national tour, which brought the play to a lot of communities. But it was right then that theaters in Seattle, and here in San Francisco, and in Atlanta, and in Charlotte were given the chance to do this show. Charlotte Rep lobbied really hard for it. They were the smallest of the regional theaters who got the chance to do it, and they put it on, and their production in 1996 was nearly shut down by evangelicals protesting the play before it even opened. A group of... Uh, A group called the the Concerned Charlotteans, led by an evangelical pastor who, in addition to hating angels in America, thought that Barney was the agent of the devil, sent faxes to everyone in the city, you know, in in city governance, saying, are you going to allow this pornographic work featuring gay people to appear on our stage? And the management of Charlotte Rep, the artistic director, the business director, and the director of the show, ended up fighting this in court and winning this incredible 11th hour court battle. That allowed them to serve injunctions to every institution within city, county and state government that might possibly have shut down the show. And they got those things out at 4.58 p.m. the day that the play was supposed to open. And the play opened, and that was the night that they discovered that the concerned Charlotteans were like 15 people and about 200 other Charlotte citizens had come out to protest in support of the play. And it was an amazing and heartwarming story that we found and we're so happy to tell. And then it was a <laughs> bitter story because within a couple of years, the kind of firestorm of controversy that this had ignited had turned into a battle over arts funding in Charlotte, North Carolina, that caused at first every arts institution in the city to be defunded in the next fiscal year, and then later caused the eventual end of Charlotte Rep as a producing organization as they couldn't sort of navigate their way through the different climate for arts that had been created.
2: Yeah, it's sort of a metaphor for what was happening in the country writ large. The conservative forces tried to close down the show using political pressure, but there's a constitutional amendment that says you can't do that. And so they failed to do so. And so they got smarter tactically, and they attacked the money. And that worked.
1: And on top of that, of course, it's a small minority doing this, but they've taken over the country now, so there we
0: are. Right. Well, people we talked to in Charlotte, you know, when we were doing those interviews for the Charlotte Rep section of the book, it was when the the bathroom bill in North Carolina, the battle over that was at its peak. And every single person we talked to brought that up as it feels exactly like that, this, like, tiny minority with these – absurd and extreme views who somehow have found the right lever to pull to make those views the rules by which everyone has to live.
2: And the same person was the executive in charge of both of those things. The oh, yes. mayor of Charlotte went on to be the governor of North Carolina when the bathroom bill passed.
1: What a tangled web we weave. 5 years ago, a small company in San Francisco, I think they're called Shark, put on Uh, Millennium Approaches, and it was the same time when Berkeley Rep was thinking of putting it on. There was a battle. They wouldn't give up the rights. They did it. Every show was sold out, not surprisingly, and it took another five years before Tony Tocconi put it on. I'm thinking that five years ago, it was a good play, but now, with Trump in the White House, the weight adds weight. Yeah,
2: it's a totally different play. One of the things that happens with great works of art is that every generation has to discover them anew, and they speak to that generation's problems in a new way. And that is one of the ways that a great work of art exists. And that's definitely, you know, the Trump election has shown that to be true when it comes to Angels in America. Trump was a joke when we started reporting this story out. And by the time we reached the halfway point of working on the book, Brexit had happened and Trump had been elected. And it absolutely transformed the writing of this book, the reporting of it, the quotes we got from people, everything. It went from being like, this is a play that speaks to eternal themes to this is a play that speaks to eternal themes, which you can see happening right now. And oh, by the way, did I mention that, you know, Roy Cohn was Trump's mentor. You know, every single interviewer he wanted to say that.
1: And it seemed in the uh, interview with Ron Liebman, he was particularly pointed about that. Did you have any problem with people going off on Trump because you knew it was almost too much of a sidebar? Uh, We struggled
0: a little bit early, I think, with trying to figure out, you know, if we want this book to be the kind of the long-standing, long-tail history of this play that can last as long as the play can, how timely do we want those quotes to be? But at the same time, the play itself was not afraid For all its questing for a kind of timelessness, it was not afraid to engage with the pop culture of the day, right? It had Grace Jones jokes and Ed Koch jokes. And, you know, it uses those things in the service of the story. And the more people couldn't stop themselves in their interviews from – explicitly drawing connections between the world of the play and the world in which we now live, the more it seemed clear to us that that had to be a crucial part of the story that we were telling, the way that it feels so electric and alive right now for this particular moment. Even if my lips to God's ears, people are still reading this book 50 years from now, they will not be facing those same problems, but seeing the passion with which people tied the show To the things they cared about right now, I think is a useful lesson as to how that show can be relevant to those people 50 years from now.
1: You talk in the book about some of the issues inside the play, and one of which, of course, is that everybody is on some level redeemed. Roy Cohn, of course, isn't. Though he does have a sweet ending, that's kind of undercut in Berkeley. <laughs> well, and then in this Berkeley rep production, he gets a braver a final, uh, final
2: right. moment, right?
1: But Joe is not redeemed. Now he's redeemed in the
2: film. He's given resolution in the film. That's what's fascinating is that what what happens with Joe is that his arc does not end in the play. It's still ongoing. And every other character is given resolution. I don't know that Joe's resolution in the film is particularly redemptive. It's just we actually know what's happened to him. We know nothing that's happened to him at the end of Perestroika on stage.
1: I had a situation when I was seeing the show with my mother in New York. I had a Mormon boyfriend. I'm a Jew from New York. (laughs) My mother kept... (laughs) <laughs> elbowing me and going, that's human breath, that's human breath. Well, Amazing. it wasn't, obviously, it wasn't. Did he look like the Marlboro Man, like they say uh, Joe looked like? Uh, no, he was, he was more, more in the other end of it. But for me, having spent time with the Mormon family, and then I'm seeing the Mormon diorama come alive on stage, it gave me a very different feel to it. Because I was seeing something that, even though I wasn't part of it, I was part of it. One thing I notice about the character of Joe in real life is he would have come out of the closet. He would have had no choice at some point.
0: Right, and we never see that side of a story. You know, Tony wrestled for many years with this, I think, in retrospect, crazy idea of writing a third part of Angels in America, a third play that would focus on Joe in his later years. At one point, someone thought he was maybe going to call it A Good Man is Hard to Find. It was just like Joe trying to find a date in Brooklyn, you know, while his politics sort of evolve. But the way that Mormonism is used in the play is so totally fascinating to me. I think that Tony's initial connection to it came mostly out of this kind of idea that if you're going to write a play called Angels in America, that includes this vision he'd had of an angel coming through someone's ceiling the way you get that angel is by dealing with the kind of the one intrinsic american religion mormonism the one religion that was created in the united states of america as it existed as a nation and so that was his initial interest But what Mormonism ended up allowing him to do was to explore all these fascinating issues of people, right? A kind of pioneer people who famously spread out across the country and headed west in a kind of religious pilgrimage of sorts that mirrored what the Jews of Eastern Europe did coming over to America, but was wholly American in that particular way. And it also allowed him to create the character that I always think of as the kind of secret weapon of this play, a character who no one really thinks about that much but who ends up being the most profoundly moving, to me at least, which is Hannah, Joe's mother, who is played in this Berkeley reproduction production by an actress named Carmen Roman who is phenomenal. And the experience of watching her the other night just mirrored the experience I've had over and over in this play of underestimating Hannah in the way that I think that Honestly, I think that probably Tony did when he first wrote her and then watching her bloom into this incredible dynamic force in perestroika because of her coming in touch with the kindness at the heart of this religion that I think for so many of us who are not Mormon often feels simply like a kind of symbol of vague evangelical oppression. And it does function that way in many ways, right? There are plenty of things about the Mormon church that have been extremely bad for the gays. But at the same time, there is, as at the heart of almost every religion, a kind of purity and beauty that can manifest itself in maybe only the most extreme of circumstances. And Tony, I think much to his surprise, gave himself a character who was able to do that in Hannah.
1: Well, I know that when I went back in those days to spend time with uh, my boyfriend's family, I felt like I was walking into an alternative universe. America, just like the myths of America, only without baseball, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Isaac Butler, you said that Errol Morris and his work affected how you wrote this book?
2: Oh yeah, Errol Morris is a huge influence on both of us, and and I've actually interviewed Errol a few times for Slate, and he's I, I mean, probably my favorite filmmaker, and you know the way that he blends contradicting accounts of an event with secondary sources and images was really really helpful even though you know that's on film and this is a prose work that was really really helpful and you know not to spoil the ending of our book but formally the ending of our book is just the ending of the the thin blue line the interviewer sort of finally reveals himself and you get their questions along with the along with the answers we were searching for models for the kind
0: of oral history we wanted to do and Many of the oral histories that get published now, whether in long or short form, have this kind of interstitial narrative voice that fills the gaps between the storytellers, right? It'll have a quote from from this guy and this woman and this guy, and then there'll be something in italics that's like, three years later, they were all surprised to discover that... The prairie had blown away. I don't know, yeah, yeah exactly. And we wanted to absent that voice. We didn't want that italicized voice in this book. We wanted to foreground the voices of the people who were telling these stories and absent ourselves as much
2: as possible. Yeah, it was it was almost like a bet we had with ourselves. And actually, when we were selling the book, you know, when we came time to like sell the book to the world and have a publisher want to do it, we kept being like, no, no, no we want to do as little of us as possible. And then eventually, we just decided, well, let's just try have none of us and see what happens and that I think was absolutely the right way to go.
1: Well years ago I created an or I, I did a lot of science fiction interviews and created an oral history which was virtually impossible to do because it was based on interviews where I couldn't go back to the people right right So I'm trying to create it. What I discovered was that it was virtually impossible at times to make that leap that three years later, did you go back to people and say, I need you to fill in the gap? Is that how you managed to do that? I
2: don't think there was anyone, I at least don't think that we had the experience of saying, we need you to say this so that we can bridge this thing in our book. We did go back to some people. We interviewed Tony Kushner many times. Right. And and a, many of those interviews
0: were about, you know, here's a specific hole in our story. Can you tell us what happened because we need it?
2: Right. And sometimes we use secondary sources, quotes from other articles from the time and stuff like that to bridge that gap. I did have the experience a couple of times of having someone kind of say something to me, but in a way that was implied or they would reference my question. And I would have to say to them, like, actually, my questions aren't going to be in this if you don't say it explicitly and won't get in the book. So. Sorry, could you repeat that? That was about the closest to being, you know, can you help me out here, buddy? That, that we got in those interviews. Um, the use of, of outside, the, you know, this was the most written about play when it was going on. There was Bruce Weber at the New York Times basically like filed, you know, one to seven stories about Angels in America every week. For months, And so having that sort of repository of secondary, you know, information from the time was was super, super helpful for bridging those gaps. And we also
0: had a, you know, a, a subject, Tony Kushner, who in the years around angels became a very specific kind of public intellectual who was giving tons of speeches, writing tons of articles and giving tons of interviews, many of which also served as great repositories of of what he was thinking contemporaneously about things that he now maybe thinks slightly differently about.
1: So you were able to go to him and find those articles and then ask him again and have him.
0: Right. We just had this sense of, okay, here are some of the things that were at play, both, what he was thinking about, about the issues of play, and also the specific problems that were coming up. So when we see an interview with Tony Kushner from the summer of 1993, when he's in the throes of trying to finish Perestroika in time for its opening, and we see in that interview just how totally stressed out he is, that tells us, oh, that's part of the story that we need to be telling. We need to come back to Tony and say, tell us about that time.
1: So there was no interviews that were in the book other than in the smaller print that you guys didn't do? There is
2: a little bit of Ben Shankman that was like he did a very extended interview on video for a video presentation at the Signature Theater during the revival. And he sent that to us and we got their permission to use it. So some of Ben Shankman's quotes come from that. But most of it comes from like a really, really delightful interview that Dan did with him where he walked down the street and from memory quoted most of the Democracy in America speech. (laughs) Right. And with Ben, that was
0: a matter of, you know, uh, when I first reached out to him, he said, well, you know, I sort of told the whole story in this video that they, that Signature never really ended up using any of, can I just send you that? And I said, sure. And then when I called him back, he still talked to me for an hour and a half because he just really had a lot of things he wanted to get off his
1: chest. The Democracy in America speech by Lewis, to put it in context for people who've seen it, is the speech that happens in the diner where Belize is facing him and going, uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's a
2: four, five-page long Monologue. Yeah, basically. I think when it was originally typed on the typewriter it was 17 pages. It's 17 right. minutes long, or it, w- it was when they were originally rehearsing it. Right. Multiple it, people mentioned that it was that long because they could go like have a cigarette, get a cup of tea, come back, and then be ready to work. Right.
0: And so Lewis is you know monologuing about politics, about race, as a way you know, not only of expressing his actual semi-Republican beliefs, but also as a way of talking around the subject at hand, which is, of course, at that point in the play, his abandonment of prior. And Belize then at the end of that scene uh, delivers a kind of epic smackdown to end all epic smackdowns. You know, that is a kind of foundational text, I think, for a lot of what Millennium in particular is trying to do in the way that it melds the personal and political. And it's also a speech that, so many Lewis's and so many Belize's had very vivid memories of the experience of rehearsing and then performing because that speech is hard for Lewis. It's hard on Belize. It gets a huge response from the audience. And it also is the part of the play that seems least like it should work when you read it for the very first time. Yet it always kills every time anyone does it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the genesis of that monologue is Tony Kushner sitting down and saying, What is this play actually about? And I'm just going to have one of the characters tell me what this play is actually about. And it's Lewis. But he can't complete a single thought without branching off into something else. And that's where it comes from, which I just think is, you know, a really wild writing tip, actually, of like, just have someone say what the piece is actually about and just see what happens. And have it be the author analog, as long as you, the
0: author, are completely brilliant and articulate <laughs> yeah, exactly, and also can't keep your mind on one thing in the middle of a sentence and immediately switch to some other brilliant idea.
1: There's one other element to it, which is that you can listen carefully to Lewis's speech or, as some people who played Belize said, it's really about Belize's reactions. So it's absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so you, you can either... It's one of those things, and there are very, very few... I think Sondheim does that in his musicals, but there are very few times where you can't hold two elements in a scene at once and f- pull both of them out completely.
2: I mean, it would be really fascinating to watch a production where the the two of them rotated very slowly during that sequence. Do you know what I mean? So that, you, so that eventually Lewis is facing upstage and what you really all are just seeing are Belize's reactions. It is, I think, really hard to be the actor playing Belize hearing the same kind of liberal racist BS that you have to put up with all day said directly to you on stage and have the audience laugh and not know whether that laughter is at Lewis or in sympathy with him. I I mean, that's really hard. And multiple actors have talked about how hard it is. And one of the things I think that has happened over 25 years is now the actor who plays Lewis agrees that that is hard <laughs> and struggles with that themself, you know, which is a sign of sort of the
1: changing mores of what good liberalism is. We haven't talked at all about Harper, uh, the Mormon wife, who has adventures in a way that it's never quite clear whether we're dealing with a fantasy. Now, of course, it's called a fantasia, or something going on in her head. It's not a problem for me, but I think it is a problem for some people to try to figure out: is this real or is it not?
0: Uh, I think one of the things that the play kind of argues is that it can be in her head and still be real. You know, that's part of what theater does, right? The I, one of the things that great theater particularly slightly non-realistic theater can do, is to bring to life with the tools of realism the kind of fantastical things that otherwise you might not ever be able to portray. And for Harper, that's certainly the case, right? So she, we know she's a pill popper, we know she's depressed, we know that she has seen and heard things before, we're clued into that in her very first scene with Joe. But at the same time, we're watching a play in which the impossible becomes possible. And the things that she sees and does are shared at times with other characters. Prior, for example, appears in her hallucination, but she also appears in his dream. And in part two, they recognize each other when they run into each other in the the Mormon museum.
1: They sort of recognize each other. That's what's great. It's like. I think I know you, but neither of them would remember because one was dreaming and one was wherever she was. Right, (laughs) Right. And
2: but then in the last beat of that segment, she says threshold of revelation and they look at each other. And then the next time you see them is in heaven and their reunion in heaven at the end of the play is one of my absolute favorite moments in all 11,000 hours of Angels in America. No, in in all seven and a half hours of Angels in America, one of my favorite, favorite moments is when Harper and Pryor see each other in heaven and they recognize each other and they're just so happy to see each other it is so moving at one of the most fraught and devastating moments in the whole play
1: this is a sequence where belize and prior go to joe and meet joe i don't remember that that much from the earlier had that changed no i think
0: that's exactly the same it's a great scene it's a really great scene that often directors with several directors told us that they think that scene often gets screwed up because people are just afraid to play it for straight farce.
2: Which is what it is. It's like a Laverne and Shirley episode. Right. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, it it is one of the funniest scenes in American theater history. That this play is capable of being that funny is I actually think one of the secrets to its greatness. That it is both the sort of you know, rawest and funniest play that you'll ever see at the same time is part of what like just makes you feel so energized while you're sitting there watching it.
0: But it's definitely a scene that can go right past you. If a production doesn't care about it that much and they don't realize just how, like, screamingly, stupidly, farcically funny it is, then you can just, like, let it fly past as a sort of thing you get past to get to the next amazing moment. But when someone does it right, it really
1: makes an impact. Isaac Butler and Dan Coyce, now you've seen Angels God knows how many times. You've read all the screenplays. You've read all of this. And now, of course, you're still on the book tour, so you're seeing other versions of it. When this is all done and you go home... Are you going to want to see Angels in America again? Well, when I go home to my Angels in America-themed living room,
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that I will. Like The intensity with which I have subsumed myself in Angels, which doesn't even really compare to Isaac, who's seen the show even more often than me in these like last year or so, has really convinced me that the play just offers incredible rewards to you no matter how many times you've seen it. Yesterday, at Berkeley Rep, seeing the play, I was struck by things I've never thought about in this play before, in part because it's so damn big that there's always going to be a, a line you forgot or a moment that you don't remember, but also because it accommodates so much. It includes everything, you know, as one of the characters in our book say, that you're never going to run out of, of delights uh, or sadnesses or sorrows or laughs
1: when you do this play. Well, I noticed... And this was the first time for me, and maybe I should have seen it because I'd seen the play several times, but the opening sequence involving the rabbi links AIDS directly to the Holocaust, which was something that I had never gotten before.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's really wild. Yeah. And, you know, if you've read How to Survive a Plague, David France's book, you know, that that it's also the movie How to Survive a Plague, or even Kushner's earlier play Bright Room Called Day, that is a comparison that people in that era were making very openly. And to the community of long-term survivors, they talk about themselves. They say this was like being a Holocaust survivor. That's the similar psychology. And so I think you're absolutely right on that that early moment is sort of tacitly bringing that into the play without making it as explicit as Kushner's earlier work had.
1: Isaac Butler, and for you, could you watch it again?
2: <laughs> I've seen it a lot. I saw the New York production twice in two weeks. I've you know and then a month later I came and saw this. Uh, 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 not to be name droppy but the last time I saw Nathan Lane, he was like, "This is getting to be like Comic Con. You have to stop coming." And so um, you know, maybe I should take his advice. But I, I agree with Dan that you know you always do see something else, and it's been a really wild and transformative experience. I think for both of us to sit and reckon with a work of art like this at this extended length for this amount of time. It's very rare that you get to do that. And it's a real privilege that I think has changed a lot of how we think about art and made both of us better writers. I mean, the way I think of it is that
0: usually usually the longest anyone ever gets to deal with Angels in America is if they're lucky enough to be producing it, right? If they're a director or a designer or an actor who's putting the show on. And even then... If they're lucky, they get three months to really think deeply about the play and then they move on to something else. And as a you know, as a writer and a critic and an artist, the thing I love most is sitting and working on a single piece of art for a long time and thinking about it from every angle and learning everything I can about it. That's why I loved theater when I was a person who made theater. That's why I love reading and writing about books, for example. And so the chance to spend 18 months, which is really how much time we spent thinking deeply almost every day about a work of art that never stops rewarding us for the thought that we put into it was, you know, just an incredibly beautiful experience.
1: Dan Kois, what have you got coming up? I understand there's a book, How to Be a Family.
0: That's true. Uh, uh, I mean, I got to finish writing it first. That's due in August, but it should come out in the fall of 2019. For much of the time that Isaac and I were writing this book, in fact, I was traveling around the world with my family. How to Be a Family is a chronicle of our attempt to explore family life outside the East Coast and West
1: Coast parenting bubble. And Isaac Butler, what have you got?
2: My next big project is a podcast miniseries for Slate.com. It's a website called Lend Me Your Ears, which is about Shakespeare and politics. So it's examining a different Shakespeare play each month for six months and then looking at the political undercurrents from Shakespeare's time that he is sort of slyly sneaking into the play and dramatizing within the play as a way of also seeing how those plays speak to our own, shall we say,
1: fraught present moment. If you want to see Angels in America in Berkeley, you can go to berkeleyrep.org and get more information. It's running through July 22nd, and the New York version runs until mid-June. So, June if you 15th. want June 15th. So if you want to see that, you better hurry up. And you can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Alinsky Podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.